So in the reading corner today, I'm really thrilled to have with me naturalist and eco-journalist Sarah Roberts, um, who is also turned children's author. We're going to be talking about her three children's books, Somebody Swallowed Stanley, Somebody Crunched Colin, and Somebody Woke Wilson. Um, they're illustrated, uh, the first one by Hannah Peck, and I believe the second two by Hannah Jane Lewin. But before we do that, I would really love to talk to Sarah about her background. Now, I've just been watching a great film called Iceland's Green Machine, um, and that seems to link very nicely into these books. So I wonder if we could start there, actually, Sarah, with that programme made a couple of years ago now. Literally um, two sheets to the wind. <laughs> I'm surprised we ever managed to, to finish it. it. We we went out to film that on the 10th of March um, 2020. And our last film day was the 17th. So it was timed absolutely perfectly with um, the entire country locking down we only just got um, down the cameraman out the country but had a lovely long time to edit it great memories um, so I created that particular documentary it was um, something that was really important for me because having worked sort of all over the world with lots of different ecosystems um, with lots of different species I've always had an amazing idea that I was just going to run off and never come back and settle you know me a dog and a surfboard but the reality is a lot of these places are um, under human impacts um, and and that in itself when you're seeing it firsthand regularly um, can be quite overwhelming and um, I myself was starting to feel a little bit of eco-anxiety so the creation of Iceland's Green Machine came about for me to to really tackle that. Um, so I kind of went back to the books and, and really started to research things that people weren't talking about maybe as much. And that's how I discovered carbon storage and climbworks and carb fix, which is um, where we went out to Iceland to go and film and learn more about that technology, but at the same time learn about the various um, impacts and systems that climate change affects over there. So are there things that are possible in Iceland because of the kind of country it is, because of its population and its geology, that will be difficult to replicate here, or can we learn lessons from them? I think they're a very forward-thinking nation. I think because they're, you know, they're a lot smaller than than we are in the UK. It's a smaller population density. Um, they can be more efficient. They can um, make changes rather quickly, and it probably costs a lot less to change some kind of infrastructure on that level compared to what we'd be looking at back here. But the actual technology, you know, it it works great over there. Essentially, there's two companies functioning together. You've got Climeworks, a Swiss company, um, who are able to suck carbon from the atmosphere. Um, and then you've got Carbfix, who are partnered with Helsheddy Power Station there, which is a geothermal power plant. And um, what they do is they mix that carbon in with water. They create crazily fizzy water. They pump it back down through the same holes um, that you've already drilled for that geothermal energy and then they seal it off and then after sort of three or four years that crystallizes in the rocks and it becomes that carbon is then in permanent storage it's out of the carbon cycle essentially and it's wreaking less havoc when we come to climate change and um, the greenhouse effect um, now it works really well because 
they have so much basalt rock there because it's a volcanic island. They've got hundreds of volcanoes. However, basalt rock is one of the most abundant rock types on the planet. So yes, we can absolutely replicate this in in different places. Um, And the other interesting thing in the conversations I had over there was that there's also the possibility of of transporting carbon from around the world to them, too. So, you know, we can suck it out of the air there, but there's also um, work to use this technology to maybe even fit to the back of planes or different vehicles, which would then allow you to capture the carbon directly before it even goes into the atmosphere, which is really exciting. Yeah, the ingenuity of technology and creativity is something to be celebrated. So we then come to the writing of your books for children. Now, it seems there's a leap there. I can see the link in the content, but what what made you want to write picture books for young children when I was at university and I was studying animal behavior I also worked for for a stint one year at a local zoo um, and I was doing all of the the talks and the education um, stuff so I got trained as an education officer and part of what we would do is deliver uh, classes for schools that were visiting or parents and their kids and it became abundantly clear to me that the best way of getting kids to remember things but also to sort of get involved in these kind of topics was through the likes of stories and props um so we used to do sort of like interactive story time where we'd bring out you know fur of a different animal or a horn or this and or a snake or a centipede and we incorporate it all into the story and I think that really planted the seed for me of how useful that technique was you know I always sort of thought if I could find a way of harnessing these huge daunting scary environmental topics and turning it into something that is fun and attractive then subliminally the kids are going to learn a lot, but also you've kind of got the parents and the teachers, you've got the whole captive audience of people that are going to get the same penny drop moment that the kids have. Mm. Um, so it all kind of came came from that, really. It came from my experience um, working at the zoo originally. Interesting, <laughs> because your prop, in effect, in this story is a plastic bag. And I can now, just listening to you talk there, I can see you doing this story with a plastic bag in your hand as your prop with a pair of eyes on it. In a way, that's such a a great idea is to turn the problem into this character that we have a bit of sympathy with. Yeah, I mean, um, with plastic, I guess, um, particularly, that one was so daunting when I found out about that situation. Um, I'd just been working on a little remote island um, where I was doing shark research. Every time we got a tiny bit of swell or a storm, we'd get so much plastic washed up on the beach. And it was mostly because we had a dump there on this tiny tropical island and no way of properly disposing of waste. Um, so I kind of thought, you know, oh, that's a problem. You know, these big pieces of plastic are a problem. It wasn't until I got back and I set up my outreach program and I was reading science papers to learn more about that. I realized just the enormity of microplastics and the rest of it. So for me, I sort of had to find a way of making it less scary for kids because ultimately, you know, this plastic bag didn't put itself in the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. and when we say big if we say Coca-Cola is the largest polluter, Coca-Cola, you know, they create the bottles, but they're not going out 
necessarily and dropping them in all of these parks and woodlands that's humans that are doing it and I felt like there'd been quite a lot out there that was removing our responsibility from the problem and I just wanted to sort of find a way to spin it so yeah creating Stanley as this sort of poor innocent thing that's getting chewed up and swallowed and spat back out and all he wants to do you know is go back to being a carrier bag with everything that I do, I guess, I'm always trying to look for a, a, an original angle to get people talking a bit more. So we've already said that you make the story very engaging for children through um, the way that you've treated the character, Stanley. But the other is a sort of repetitive, very traditional story structure where, you know, Stanley is picked up by a whale, by a bird, you know. Um, so that has quite a reassuring feel to it in a way that in the same way that the rhyme in text can feel quite reassuring and really encourages children to join in with that storytelling I think. Yeah it was trying to make it as interactive as possible it comes back down I guess to those interactive story readings that I mentioned when I was at the zoo I was trying to um I'm always trying to squeeze as much um, educational information as I can almost on each page. Um, I was a bugger for the illustrator because, you know, I'm like, oh, you've got to keep the barnacles on the whale. Because when I do the book reading and it's a bit like a guess who, um, I guess in each of these books, there's a guess who moment and the kids get a clue as to what creature or what um, item that they're looking at. But for me, aside from just reading the text and doing the guess who, I'll always then elaborate on, well, if you're looking at the seagull here, you'll notice the red spot on his beak. Does anyone know what the red spot's for? And I'll talk about the eject button and how baby herringles know innately to peck that little red spot from the moment that they're born because it, the adult gull will then vomit up what they're eating. And it's, it's all just an excuse for me to go into more detail about all the animals, really, as well. I have to say, I did appreciate that when I was reading it. You know, I've just come back from watching humpback whales and uh i know that it's this tremendous pressure of steam that comes mm. out and uh when you're close to one and you hear that it's just amazing and so it's factually in this story there are all these things that are factually really accurate <laughs> yeah that's the biologist in me coming out <laughs> Yeah. Can we just talk very briefly about Colin, which is the second book? So the first one is, it's all, you know, it has a tagline about saving the seas. Colin is a crisp packet and the tagline is saving the planet. I mean, really, they're all about saving the planet. But a crisp packet's a really good prop, if you like, because it's one that children have yeah. on a daily basis. You know, it's very familiar to them. Yeah, it is. It is one of the most common um, items of waste um, that you're going to find, especially in, you know, the bushes, the hedgerows, the school fields, the parks, the cities. You always come across these crisp packets. I even found one in the middle of a mine, actually, that was like hundreds of metres below the ground. A crisp packet that was like from the 1960s down there in absolutely perfect form. Um, so yeah, they're very hard to degrade because what you have is um, a plastic coated foil. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one item. The reason that I created it with a food item, though, um, I really wanted to highlight why animals often get attracted to these things. And a lot of it is down to smell. You know, we'd covered in Stanley how it can look deceiving, but quite a lot of the time 
especially when it comes to plastic, when plastic gets wet, tiny little organisms grow on the plastic and they release a certain smell, which is like sulfur, rotten eggs, and that attracts birds particularly, but different animals to it. And I really wanted to bring that back with Colin. Um, so a lot of it was um, showcasing how um, land-based animals can also be attracted. Obviously, my background is also as a grizzly bear guide, so I had to find a way of getting those in there. Um, but, um, you know, that also brings it down to the problem that you have, especially in North America, um, with litter that's not been disposed of properly. It's a huge hazard to bears, you know, fed bears are dead bear. Um, so it's it's a really big problem, and I kind of wanted to to get that out there because it's not just bears it's also foxes in the uk it's hedgehogs um i'll be releasing a video soon but i spent some time in the rspca here in the uk um and and we were looking at how seals and you know hedgehogs and all the local british wildlife can get entangled in or get um stuck in or have problems because of of plastic on land and in the sea and i think we had such a huge push on the ocean it was about time to sort of bring it back and be like, well, has anyone thought about how plastic affects worms? Because, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind, but it it, it is uh, just as important and it's causing just as much peril on land as it is in the ocean. So in each of these books, including Colin, there's a child who comes in at the end to show us what we should be doing and where these things should go. And you've said that the crisp packet is not very bio- biodegradable, but it is made into a watering can at the end of that story. Yeah, so there are a few places that can recycle crisp packets and there's certain collection schemes, um, TerraCycle being one of them. Um, so, yeah, we did look heavily into well, what can a crisp packet be made into? And I think the options we were looking at was sort of a, a bin, which I quite like, to be honest, the full circle of it, um, or a bench. But, yeah, having it as a watering can did feel like quite a nice ending for him um, because then, of course, it brings you on nicely to a potential future book that I hope will get out there one time. <laughs> we come to the third book, the most recent book, uh, which I think is absolutely inspired because here you're trying to explain, or you do explain, um, in terms that younger readers can understand the carbon cycle. And incidentally, I noticed Colin pro- crops up again in the end papers <laughs> yeah there's also Stanley snuck in there but he's a slightly different color because I think with it being a different illustrator we had to oh. mix that but yeah you might spot him on one of the pages as well um but yeah, there's there's and Hannah Hannah Jane Lewins she's been brilliant in terms of adding so many extra details to each page so you know it's not just a book that you read once you can read it again you can spot all the different mice and in the engine and lots of different things like how many spiders can you see on the page um so she's been great at that front um but again it's just about increasing interactivity but yeah this one Actually, um, I wrote this book just before around the same time that I was creating the documentary pitch to go out and shoot Iceland's Green Machine. Um, So it was all sort of at the same time. I was having a lot of penny drop moments myself. Um, If you've seen that documentary, there's a moment, I think, where I'm drawing how or what climate change is, you know, in terms of we've removed carbon from the permanent storage and put it out here. And that is the basis really of Wilson. Um, it's just a different way of, of explaining it. So mm-hmm. I'm always trying to make anything that I put out, 
I kind of want to make sure that it's as useful as possible. Um, but of course, as I said to you earlier, I had a little bit of trepidation with this one because I was very, very, very passionate. This book must go out. It's going to be really useful. And it took a little while for other people to fully get on board with it. And so it's only just come out this year. And a little part of me is like, oh, God, what if I was wrong? <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's still early days. So, yeah, it's um, quite interesting to hear all the feedback right now. So basically, Wilson is an atom of carbon um, who's released into the atmosphere when a big drilling company comes along, drills under the sea. And then he journeys through a car, he's spurted out through the exhaust, gets eaten by a cow, again, gets pushed out into the atmosphere. And then at the end, we have a character we might recognise the child in this book in a yellow raincoat. Um, yeah. He plants a tree and Wilson then settles back to sleep in his uh Back down in the ground. Yeah. And and the thing is, it is put in very, very simple terms for a child to understand. But realistically, that's all anybody needs to understand. Once you understand climate change as essentially an imbalance of carbon, we've got too much of it in the atmosphere. It used to be permanently stored underground. It becomes not just a, a simple problem to solve, but also a much less intimidating situation, which I think for me, having visited schools for so long and seen a rise in, in climate anxiety in kids, that was important, really. Mm. Let's come on to some of the fantastic positive work that you're doing with schools, because I understand that you are um, working with eco schools. And this is something that our listeners might be interested to know and to get involved with. Yeah, so um, we have a range of videos that are going to be coming out in November uh, around the time of COP, which is around the 8th, I believe, of of November. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll be releasing a new video every day. Um, And yeah, this has been a, a collaboration effort where essentially we've created a resource for teachers who are looking to incorporate more climate and sustainability into the curriculum because it's not really on there and that's absolutely mind-blowing but obviously it deserves to be on there and there's very simple ways that you can not just get that into the classroom but also incorporate more of that um, into the school and and help the school to offset carbon too so and and reduce those impacts so we cover a range of different topics in there but yeah that's actually been the latest bit of filming that I've been doing this last month really. And where can schools find out about that? If they are uh, subscribed to Eco Schools or they're looking on the Eco Schools website they're all going to go out on there you can also follow me on social media um, at Sarah's Real Job because my mum was always asking when I was going to get one Um, (laughs) but also on the Eco Schools um, on their social media too there'll be links but they will be a free resource for any teacher to to look and hopefully enjoy <laughs> and uh can you also tell us a little bit about your business this is this is creature yes of course what does that do uh it's always evolving <laughs> um yes yeah, so um creature is the name of my um ed- environmental education company so I originally started it in 2013. It was first called The Bite Project, um, conservation kids could get their teeth into. Um, and that was because um, I myself and, and the guy I started up with at the time, we both had sharp bites from the lab that we'd been working at. 
Um, but it, it has, like I say, it's evolved since then. So now Creature, um, one of our main things that we run is is events, multi-speaker events. So we have a range of different ones, but the one that we're pushing mostly at the moment is the Climate Action for Schools event. So um, we ran our first pilot one um, last year where we had had about... 26 different workshops over two days uh we brought in speakers from the uk but also abroad joining us virtually so we had scientists uh shark experts elephant experts we also had um a friend of mine james Selick, who is the author of there's a orangutan in my bedroom mm. if you've heard of that um he came in to talk about uh, palm oil and also industrial meat. I had my friend Jack Randall, who's a, a Nat Geo presenter, who came in with his tarantula and his snakes and talked about how climate change affects different ecosystems. I was particularly focused on um, Iceland's green machine, so talking about carbon storage technology. Um, and then we also had journalists. We had React, an organization that work in disaster relief in um, any kind of environmental disaster or war. So they're finding themselves more and more busy. And it was just a really good way of getting the whole school um, right from the littleies. Uh, so I think we did it right down to nursery all the way up to sort of 13, 14 year olds um, uh, and got them involved in lots of different areas um, of, of climate change, but mostly in, and the most important part of it was focusing on solutions as well, um, not just solutions that they take um, part in, but also solutions that are actually happening by big companies and by scientists around the world that they may never have known about, which can really help to reduce climate anxiety. So, um, yeah. yeah. I think not only reduce climate anxiety, which is obviously a big thing, but show them a potential in terms of what jobs could be out there yeah, in the future. Absolutely, yes. In. Which is quite funny because that's actually the fourth book that I've been writing this last two months. Um, so another book, hopefully, that's going to be coming out um, soon for an old age group, more key stage two, um, looks at the world's wildest jobs and different careers um, from climatologist to paleontologist but also how these different um, jobs sort of are affected by climate change um, and that at the same time as that I'm recording a podcast with the different experts that I've interviewed for the different sections of the book so there's going to be lots of resources for schools and for teachers and kids who are yeah hopefully going to be inspired by all of these different careers. Fantastic. We'll certainly be sure to signpost those as well when they come on, on board. And just very lastly, you hinted that the watering can might feature in a future story. Are you able to tell us anything about that? Uh, it's too early right now, but it's, um, yeah, I have a, another one that I am, you know, nudging to get over the line along this series, um, which would focus on a creature that is, in my opinion, far too overlooked and far too useful. But I can't talk too much about what it is. Um, but Is it uh, long and pink and wriggly? Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a long process, knowingly, from, from having the idea conception, writing, you know, the first manuscript and actually getting it to the stage where you're taking it into schools. But for me as a scientist, I'm like, we're taking too long. It needs to be out tomorrow. We should have done this 10 years ago, you know. So there's always that frustration there because I, I have um, and I and I do spend so much time out in the field and then bringing that back. It always renews that sense of urgency, I guess. 
Well, it's been great talking to you today, Sarah, and I'm looking forward to following all of those projects going forward. And perhaps we'll get the chance to talk again when some of the, some more of those have come to I hope so. But thank you for joining me in the Reading Corner. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Scholastic Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.